0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Geek Peak. My name is Oren Cohen, and today we have another interview with Brennan Lee Mulligan about Dimension 20's season, A Crown of Candy. Originally conducted in April 2020, and unfortunately with less-than-stellar audio quality, this was so much fun. Brennan dives into the lore, and we are discussing um creativity we're discussing world building and also a bit about dimension 20's sensitivity and basically having a lot of fun talking to each other this was a great interview and if you are just getting now into a crown of candy you will find this interview a great appetizer before you start watching the show so without further ado have fun listening to this episode of Geek Peek.
1: But yes, Crown of Candy. I'm I'm excited to talk about it, man. It was uh, what an experience.
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, okay, so uh, we'll start with an easy question um, before we hop in to talk about season five. I'm reading from my tablet. Actually, I have it right here with me. Um, okay. Before we hop in to talk about season five, holy moly of Dimension 20, there will be people who read this and ask themselves, what is Dimension 20? Care to give them a little overview of the show?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Dimension 20 is a Dungeons and Dragons actual play show uh, produced by College Humor and its streaming platform Dropout that features a group of seven friends and comedians playing D&D together It is an anthology series where we go to different worlds and play different characters. Some of those worlds we continue in future seasons. Some we just do one-offs. Occasionally, we'll even have little side quests where we get guest players to come in. Uh, We've had um, uh, guest players like Matt Mercer, Erica Ishii, the McElroys, Amy Warple, Ipi um and then uh we have you know our core cast is uh Brian Murphy, Allie Beardsley, Lou Wilson, Emily Axford, Shavon Thompson, and Zach Oyama. Um uh we've had other college humor alums like Mike Trapp, Rekha Shankar, Jess Ross, Lily Duplay. So we've had an incredible cast of performers, and we do uh a actual play series with a lot of heart and a lot of humor that's sort of the the tone we try to hit so you know our first season was fantasy high which was like you know what if john hughes ran a game of DD? it's a high school for heroes in kind of a all-american suburb but orcs goblins trolls dragons wizards you know the in in the suburbs um our second season with the full core cast was uh, The Unsleeping City, which is like a hidden magical world inside of real New York City. Um, our side quests have been kind of like a parody of the bad guys from Lord of the Rings and Escape from the Bloodkeep. And a mashup of uh, Ocean's Eleven meets The Borrowers in Tiny Heist. And A Crown of Candy is our, our uh, season that's about to start premiering on April 8th. And this is kind of, I think, maybe the most ambitious season we've done to date. It is a game game of high medieval political intrigue and sinister warfare and plotting. It is Game of Thrones meets Candyland. Uh, That is a, a crown of candy.
2: Okay, uh, we'll get to Game of Thrones uh, in a bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, okay, let's start from the beginning. Fantasy High was a John Hughes game of D and D, and the Unsleeping City was a modern magical New York City. What is this? What is this season's general idea? How did it come to be?
1: Awesome. So, uh, A Crown of Candy started with this general idea of um, what. So. Dimension Twenty is produced by College Humor and Dropout, which is a comedy brand. Um, Dimension Twenty is an actual play storytelling show, so we definitely have a backbone of drama and like a a what we try to create like an a a plot that is a dramatic, surging, interesting narrative because the storytelling is going to be so long. It's 30 hours of content. So, you know, even, you know, any comedy is going to need a gripping story to be able to hold your interest that long. But, you know, in the beginnings of Dimension 20, we saw that there were kind of two ways to tackle doing D&D comedically. One way is to kind of like, do it tongue-in-cheek or glibly and kind of like make kind of like make fun of DD while you're playing it um which i think ends up getting really stale really fast right the other way to do it is to commit really hard and seriously play an idea that is inherently funny so our idea when you design the world for dimension 20 is if you design a world that is comedic uh inherently you can make it funny by just committing to it so a high school for heroes with these teen adventurers who need to like do quests to get a good grade on their finals is like an inherently funny idea which means that you don't have to Work that hard to find jokes. You can just play the truth of the character and it will be funny the more you commit to the character's point of view, right? And for a group of seven improvisers, that's always going to be an easier way to find comedy than having to like pop the balloon of your own sense of reality all the time. Um, so with A Crown of Candy, you know, when we've, we've done a couple seasons of this, it was just about finding something we were excited to play that would once again create comedic juxtaposition, right? And I think at the time period we were coming up with a crown of candy, like the finale of like a Game of Thrones had kind of already happened. And there was, you know, there was like this, this funny thing where a lot of us had problems with the final season, as I think a lot of people (laughs) did. And there was an element of, but, but Game of Thrones also was like this incredible force in pop culture for like 10 years, you know, it like dominated conversations. There were like watch parties at bars. And um, you know, there's this fun thing of, um, I was looking at Candyland, the board game. And I was thinking about like, like, Oh, look at this little candy King and candy queen. But whenever you look at history, Kings and queens are not, like, cute little innocent things. If if you are a monarch, there's probably a history of bloodshed and warfare. Nobody gets to wear a crown without either them or their, you know, patrilineal ancestors having done some messed up
2: things to get to that point. Um, I, so, I actually, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no go, go for it, go for it. <laughs> no, I I wanted I just wanted to say that... Uh, i uh um i fell into a uh wikipedia uh um uh, rabbit hole uh mm-hmm. of going to the uh, english monarchy uh, a few weeks ago and <laughs> and there's some, <laughs> there some really messed up stuff there
1: <laughs> <laughs> you ain't kidding, man there's like yeah it's 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 really messed up those like high european um monarchies are you know fill and that's the funny thing is it's it's this uh especially as as a someone who loves history there's this really wild thing where you go and look at these these you know european nations during that time that were like high like what we think of as like you know Arthurian legend, and these medieval paintings of lords and ladies. But then you look at it and it's like the Crusades and just barbarism. (laughs) It's like this weird thing where, I will say this as, as a matter of opinion for me, a lot of these nations during this medieval period that were like yeah and honestly even in other time periods too that have been like we are the height of civilization are usually accompanied by the most insane barbaric violence of like all time so you look (laughs) at kings and queens dressed in their fripperies and finery and you're like these are dangerous scary people (laughs) like don't get it twisted so the idea of um, cute little cupcake people and gumdrop people—you know, these like k- kings of candy and like sugar princesses and stuff like that—and then doing a Game of Thrones-style thing where it's like, no, 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 these are dangerous, scary people. Was like, oh my god, that is simultaneously that—that that is like a comedic juxtaposition, but there's also something kind of true about it, which is like the best, the best kind of joke to tell, right? Um, so that's what the inspiration for A kind of Candy
2: was. That's incredible. And I can't wait to see it. Um, <laughs> um, okay. In every season of Dimension 20 so far, I was inspired by and loved the beautifully crafted characters the team had made. What can we see this time around? What can you tell us about them?
1: Oh man. So so I'm going to talk about two things. Number one, Rick Perry is our production designer, he's our head artist. He has an incredible team of artisans he's been working with for many seasons. Nate Villarreal is our head uh minis painter. Uh, Sabrina uh, uh Wishner is our uh, I think our head set designer. We have Shane Brockway who's been helping for a, a, such a long time. Maxi is a huge help on set. There's like a number of people on the team that are just what what happened is like in other when we did Unsleeping City Rick and his team did an amazing job bringing this like New York set to life and doing something that felt so real and then with this one it was so fun to watch the chains get taken off and go we are in a candy world made of food where the buildings are food and the people are food and it was like taking the chains off and letting them off the leash like it was an acid trip blowout Rick and his team were so creative. It was so fun. They they just kill I mean like it was breathtaking to watch them go so into such overdrive in this fantastical setting. The colors are so vibrant. It is it, it's like um it's like the the work Rick and his team did only thing I can compare it to is like when I was a kid watching the Wizard of Oz and she steps out of her house into Munchkin land and that how hyper surreal and fantastical that is, is what Rick and his team did. And the second thing I'll say is um, we have an incredible official character portrait artist this time who also constructed our map, who is Samir Barrett. Samir is, you gotta go find him online. I think Sketchmaster Skills is his uh, uh, Instagram or one of his social channels. But Samir Barrett is one of the most talented artists I've ever worked with, incredible to work with, such a cool guy a golden hearted dude, in addition to being an incredible artist um, who we actually discovered through doing fan art of the show. I have a fan art poster of his up in my apartment. That's how we found out about him. Uh, And then we were able to reach out and hire him. Thankfully, because he does a lot of storyboard work for big animation companies. He does a lot of animation work for big animation companies. So we were lucky to be able to grab him. if, if If you're someone that hires animators and illustrators, Boy, should you reach out and hire Samir, he's awesome. Um, And he's on our portraits for this and nailed the tone and look and emotionality of the characters this season.
2: Okay. Um, um, Okay, so actually, um, what you actually answered right now is like the answer to my next question. (laughs) Incredible. Uh, Um, so in this specific question that I asked you before, I, uh, I should have clarified, I meant the, the PC characters. Who are the actual PC characters? Are. Yeah.
1: Hell yeah. Our PCs this season um, uh, are the Royal House of Rocks, which are uh, the royal family of Candia. Um, what we want to do with the world building for this one is this is set on a continent called Calorum. Which is a uh, a giant landmass composed of six different um, food nations that are all based on the American uh, uh, you know uh, official food pyramid. This old nutritional public service tool that uh, separated food into um, grains, meat, vegetables, fruit, dairy. And Candy, right? And um, in our world, Candia is uh, the the smallest nation. Um, uh, it is one of six nations that are all in this treaty together called the Concord. Um, the loose history of calorum is about 30 years ago, this thing happened called, sorry, not, I think about 20 years ago in the world of calorum this thing happened called the Ravening War, which is this huge war between all the nations that was eventually settled into this thing called the Pax Calorum, uh, which, is, uh, which resulted in the Concord, where now all six nations are in this treaty where they all agree to be ruled by a concordant emperor who is sort of like, Uh, Even though they're an emperor, they're almost like appointed or elected as a representative of one of the six nations. So there's kind of this uneasy peace between the six nations. Candia is the smallest of those nations, but was incredibly powerful due to the brilliance of their military leaders, due to their connection with magic, where Candians kind of had this innate... Uh, uh, magic to them. They're very powerfully. They have a lot of arcane power. So even though they're small, they are very uh, tough and potent. And, um, we follow their royal family, right? Um, uh, through they they, will meet them in the first episode um and so working with our intrepid heroes our wonderful six cast members it was really funny because in season one they play a bunch of kids that meet on their first day of school and become best friends season two they're kind of a bunch of adults that all have their own baggage and are keeping secrets from each other in this one they are playing a family and their men at arms like they're literally there are parent-child relationships uh, and sibling relationships between, and and like cousin, you know, like even like extended family relationships between PCs in this game, which is so, so, so exciting and cool to see played out. So many things make sense right now in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, it's a really, you know, it's a really high medieval thing. And we wanted to, it was funny because we, we this whole idea of like a crown of candy is this very fun thing where you know one of the early decisions of like, do we want it to be just candy people? And very quickly I was like, no, I, I want a more politically complex world. So we added in all these other food nations to make the politics of the land really as complex as possible. But we're following this one family from this one nation.
2: Wow, <laughs> that, this is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Okay, so I promised we'll get to Game of Thrones. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's see. Um, Okay, I assume Westeros was a bit of an inspiration in the world-building process of this world. The trailer gives off a Game of Thrones vibe, but in a good way. Not like season eight, 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 eight. Season eight way. Don't it <laughs> add, Don't add, don't at me. <laughs> Is that true? What else inspired the world building of Calara? Okay, so you uh, you um, answered a bit of this. Um, so let me add to this. Like um, if we can expand a bit about the actual monarchy of the world, I mean, in terms of, like, not just specifically Candia, which is the family you spoke of, mm-hmm. like, in the general monarchy of, of this, of Calorum, of this world?
1: Um, yes, so uh, uh, the world, I had a ton of fun with
2: the the world building for
1: Calorum. A Crown of Candy has the deepest world lore of any of the worlds we've played in thus far. It, it's certainly the one that was the most... Like I spent the most time being like, what, you know, I need to come up with a couple hundred years of history. We need to come up with languages and religions and Royal houses and family mottos and yada, 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 like a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, so uh, obviously uh, game of Thrones was a huge inspiration. I think that the things that I did that departed from, uh, from a game of Thrones had to do with, um, and listen, I love a, a Game of Thrones. George R. R. Martin is a genius. Um, I think in in Martin's Westeros, uh, religion is something that is definitely present. But a lot of his his like priests, like like the Septons in his world are kind of like advisors and stuff like that. You know, he has like the lady in red, who's really the biggest like religious character, Melisandre, the biggest like mover and shaker who's religious, which is, I think uh, a, a very strange reading of the high medieval period to me where the Catholic church was the political institution of medieval Europe, right? Um, so there are a number of different religions present in the world of Calorum, and they have a significant effect on the politics of Calorum. So, so religion is a big deal. Um, uh, uh, we have we have a PC who is a chaplain and primogen of the Bulbian Church. So we have somebody who is like an authority, an administrative authority within this large. Uh, church institution within Calorum. Um, so, uh, uh, there are parts of, of A Crown of Candy that, uh, you know, in every season we all, I, you know, myself and a lot of our PCs, Allie Beardsley, especially love philosophy and mythology. We love theology and cosmology. So we love to talk about the big questions of the world and how the, like how we feel about the world, spirituality, how the world works. Um, that is very present in this season as well, but there's also the presence of religion as a political institution, which has not always been present in the other seasons, right? Um, uh, other world-building stuff I would say is um, uh, there's a very different political structure to Calorum in terms of supreme authority like in westeros is like king's landing there is a king uh, you know you know there is the iron throne and the king or queen as it's upon it in this one it's resting on this this thing called the concord which makes everything a lot shakier because there was a voluntary treaty to end this war that all these nations entered into voluntarily so um the emperor of the of Calorum is attached politically to this treaty rather than someone who is a descendant of someone that conquered everybody. So there's an element to all of this of like, um, of uneasiness based on the fact that this is held together, not with like a conquering emperor, but with like a treaty, laws, th- like agreements that were entered into, right? Um, And some of the nations have different, like Candia is a monarchy. um, uh, Syresia is uh, ruled by a Senate. So Syresia is a, uh, a a Republic rather than being a monarchy, but is also a part of this six nation compact. Um, uh, The meat lands are ruled by this, like uh, by a a high warlord. They're kind of like a, uh, a, a more, uh, there's, you know, the the Meatlands are are ruled by the Warlord of the Beef Clans. So there's like different structures in the way that these nations self organize, which I think is also a little bit different from the more formal
2: houses of Westeros. Okay, um, yeah, that sounds. I love how how like the the world building is so detailed. I. I... Thank you so much. I appreciate it. (laughs) Um, Okay, now I have a question which is a little different, and I think you'll like answering it. Um, Ah. So far, Dimension 20 has been a very inclusive show, giving representation to many people from all walks of life. I'm sure this season won't be any different. However, I'm curious about the process. Medieval times weren't as inclusive as the 21st century, and I'm wondering if the team has given some thought on how to tackle this issue.
1: I do love this question, Oren. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so, so uh, uh, in every season of the, you know, uh, of the past many of Dimension 20 seasons that we've done, we always hire sensitivity consultants to consult on the show in matters of. Uh, race and ethnicity, in matters of sexual orientation, in matters of disability, all the kind of things that we can do to um, uh, make the show as inclusive as possible, and we always include uh, consultation from these sensitivity consultants as early in the process as possible. Because the show is improvised at the table, um, we... I we can't do what like a screenwriter or novelist would do, which would be to submit a manuscript to a sensitivity re- reader or sensitivity consultant and then get notes back. So we need to be as prepared as possible when we go in to improvise with what we're planning on doing. So the trick with uh, uh, A Crown of Candy was we have nations, we're going into this medieval period that was extremely barbaric, um, Uh, And, you know, how do we make it inclusive? There are themes that we want to include that have to do with, you know, betrayal, politics, and war. And in those situations, you know, people do use uh, uh, differences of nations and xenophobia to whip up public feeling and animosity between nations. So that's a part of politics, right? Um, What I will say is there were a lot of interesting conversations in making sure that this show Cleaved to Dimension 20's uh, desire and love for representation and inclusivity, while also depicting a season that's going to have a lot of bad guys in it. Right. Um, one of the things that we decided really quickly was, um, you know, we always want a show that is really inclusive of race, and this was a very interesting season because we're in a world where everybody is like gumdrops and broccoli, you know. So it's this world where ideas of race are uh, bizarre because people, there's, there's a character who's, uh, uh, the, you know, the king's, uh, right hand man, who's just a slice of cake. So what, what race is that? Um, you know, and, uh, uh, we have an awesome, uh, artist, Samir Barrett, who, you know, after having a lot of toxic sensitivity consultants, um, you know, we had these initial conversations with the consultants that had to do with, um, this period of time is kind of based historically on the same thing that Game of Thrones is based on, which is the War of the Roses, these like high medieval conflicts between like England and France and these kind of European nations. Um, Do we want to be inclusive of non-European countries at the risk of engaging in stereotype about other nations, like if you include a East Asian nation, um, uh, you know, you get into issues of like, well, what food are those characters made out of? And uh, that can be something that can be um, uh, very triggering for for people and make them feel less included in the show. Um, And, you know, what do we do with like, uh, and then if you have these nations that kind of have like national character to them, what is the character you give if you're trying to base a nation on a non-European nation, right? And uh, there were a lot, we had a lot of consultations about it. And basically what a lot of our sensitivity consultants came to was um, because you're basing this on a historical period and basing it on this like dark ages or or high medieval Catholic church dominated Europe, um, there were people of color in Europe at that time. Right. And that often gets fully erased. There's a lot of great if you go online, you can find like medieval POC is an awesome Tumblr about the presence of non-white people in medieval Europe that have been totally erased from history. So the decision we ended up making and we went and talked to Samir Barrett was um, it is uh, going to be okay for us to. Uh, keep the architecture the clothing design keep those things in this like high medieval kind of candyland-esque you know high medieval bavarian gothic european place but we're not going to default our character art to being eurocentric so so our if our people are made of candy and meat and vegetables and fruit um we don't need to default to white features for those characters we don't need to default that uh you know when the characters are humanoid enough looking and they're not like just an apple with legs and arms or whatever um you know uh let's not default to your european features for anybody even though our architecture and military stylings are going to be kind of eurocentric Um, So that was like a thing that took a a bunch of awesome conversations about how to make the show as inclusive as possible. Um, And then uh, there are some decisions we made about uh, inclusivity where we just looked at like LGBT representation. And we just just kind of went like, um, you know what, we're going to make this world just more inclusive of that. So, um, you know, there are... Uh, uh, same-sex relationships just in the world um, uh, you know different nations have different levels of feeling about uh, uh, those issues but for the most part you know we just said like uh, uh, we want to represent uh, you know people on the LGBT spectrum um, m- you know in a more uh, inclusive way than maybe the Middle Ages were at the time and um, and then, uh, uh, you know the, and then uh, past that in terms of other types of representation, um, uh, it's very interesting because there are a lot of villainous forces in this season. So there is definitely some bad eggs out there. But I think our the main thing is that our heroes are extremely inclusive. Um, uh, so our PCs and Candia in general um, uh, are immune to a lot of like forces of bigotry. And so hopefully anyone watching the show will um, find themselves included, at least in in the arms of the heroes of the show.
2: Awesome. Um, I remember in the trailer, I saw a character. I'm so curious about that character. And uh, I I gotta ask, there was a character in the trailer who was a bag of chips. (laughs) 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 And, And I'm like, wait um can you explain <laughs> that for a second
1: <laughs> yeah 100 so, percent. so to answer your question um uh uh the the the, the uh certain food people in calorum are born with a part of their body also being a container for the food that they are so the bag is also a part of that character's body.
2: Oh, uh, God. There is, uh,
1: there is another character who is a, bo- a living bottle of milk. And the glass bottle is a part of her body as well. She is a... Uh, wow. You know, she, uh, yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> That's great. Um, okay. Uh, I had another question about Calaram's monarchy, a um, monarchy. And you answered it. Um okay i'm curious about how the different groups of people live their lives in this world what is the life experience of someone living in the meat country as opposed to a person living in vegetania
1: uh oh awesome so the nations are very different from each other um so the meat lands Uh, is a land, uh, uh, I think the biggest difference between the meatlands and Vegetania, and I can talk about a lot of different nations. Um, The meatlands are modeled on like ancient Celts a little bit. So they are, uh, and they, uh, uh, the big struggle in the meatlands is that they have been converted to the Bulbian church the least. Their primal ancestral faith in the great beasts, which is a polytheistic um, belief in the the great animals that make up meat. Because one of the things about these food people is they don't eat each other, but they do have an understanding that they are all food, even though there's no human beings walking around eating them. Um, So that belief that they are food ends up being a religious conviction. So in the meat lands, um, this the, uh, this manifests in this belief in like, if you're a prime rib steak or you're a hot dog, you still know that some, as a religious conviction that you are descended from the great cow or the great pig, even though you've maybe never seen a real cow or a pig before, right? Um, and uh, those, uh, so the Meatlanders uh, live in this stark, beautiful land of like bones and like red fields of meat um they are like you know a proud noble people that you know uh uh like have this belief and love of like uh they're 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 kind of like the 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 classic like barbarian nation right they have a giant metropolis city called karn uh where Basham Yasa, who's the warlord of the beef clans lives um uh, you know, they're they're like the, the the sort of Meatlander vibe is like they don't organize their armies as efficiently. You know, they're kind of like the ancient Celts. So there's like the Romans came in and like divided and conquered, but there's this attitude of like one Meatlander can defeat you know a hundred Ceresian <laughs> soldiers, right? Um, uh, Vegetania is a land that is dominated by the fact that the religious capital. Of the continent is there. So Greenhold is the, the capital of King Cabbage, who's the monarch, but Bright Garden is also in Vegetania, which is sort of like the Vatican, right? The Bright Garden is the religious center, and it's where the Hierophant Rex of the Balbian Church reigns and holds sway over the Balbian Church throughout all the nations of Calorum. So Vegetania is a land where the the average day for someone living in the meatlands varies tremendously based on what meat clan you belong to you could be living in Carn and be a meatlander scholar or be a meatlander diplomat you know, or you could be living out in the the fields and or living out in the wild and be a raider or a scavenger, be a farmer, be you know one of any number of meatlanders. For someone living in um, vegetania, you are probably a serf who is you know <laughs> tilling the fields. Uh, unless you are one of the many clergy members that live there, in which case you could be in Bright Garden having uh, an incredibly detailed political life, or one of any number of monks and abbots, you know, cloistered scholars, nuns, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and then I'll go into less detail for the others. Uh, Fructera is a, uh, uh, sort of like almost like Renaissance Italy or, or like Spain, uh, France. Um, but Fructera is like a lot of wealth, a lot of trade. Um, you know, Fructera is kind of this like uh, uh, fertile. You know, it's like a, a, a and it's also where Cometa, the capital of the of Calum is. Ceresia um, is the most populous land. It's a republic. It's a very kind of like Roman, like like imperial vibe, but no emperor anymore. Um, uh, the Dairy Islands are uh, sailors, uh, so they're a very naval focused place um, that are kind of a smaller nation, honestly. And then Candia is this like, uh, uh, you know, extremely small, but extremely powerful, um, uh, kind of rooted in magic, scholarship, wonder. There's there's like a lot more natural fantasy to Candia than there is to a lot of the other Kingdoms, and that can be something of an issue. Like in this, because um, you know the Meatlanders are kind of like out and out uh, pagans in a lot of way, and uh, the leadership of the Meatlands subscribes to the Bulbian Church, but like maybe in name only. With Candia, they're a lot more devout. You know, they do belong to the Bulbian Church in Candia, although there are people that still practice the old ways there. But the issue with Candia is. Um, there's a lot of practicing magic there, and the official church doctrine is that arcane magic is a no-go. Mm. So there's so there's a very interesting thing there of like what flies in Candia versus what flies in the rest of the
2: Concord. Awesome! Wow, um, I, I I'm already imagining it's going to be going to be incredible. Um, You also teased us about, uh, uh, in the fireside chat, uh, you teased us about the character death. Um, So I didn't have a a, a question prepared for that here because this was written like uh, in February. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will ask you uh, how much the stakes were raised in this season.
1: Um, We were modeling this off of, you know, this, this, Stark, dangerous, high medieval storytelling. Um, So what was discussed between me and the players prior to the game starting was every season has the possibility of player death. And the only difference this season was um, in seasons like Fantasy High, I construct challenges to kind of fit this awesome, heroic, high fantasy narrative, which was uh, which is, you know, every fight is designed to be really challenging, but also to make the PCs look like badasses, because that's the type of story Fantasy High is. A Crown of Candy is a lot darker, and I basically <laughs> told the PCs, these fights are not designed, not all of them, with fairness in mind. They are designed to be realistic to the challenges you find yourself in based on the choices you make. So it's not that I told them they were, the, they, you know, there, uh, uh, there was, a, like, how do I put this? I walk into this season being aware that uh, uh, this was going to be a very dangerous season. And that doesn't mean that I was going to ever bend or break the rules. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to punish PCs, but um, I basically told them um, these fights will be designed to really take your choices into account, and they will be designed to reflect the reality of the world of Calrum. These fights are not designed to be, like, cool set pieces. This is like the enemies or allies you make, the choices you make will result in these fights being realistic to the world and cleaving to the tone of a lot of the the source uh, material of this type of storytelling, where like the good guys don't always win. Um, So as a result of that, unlike other seasons, we had secondary characters ready to go because we knew how much more lethal This season had the potential to be
2: okay. (laughs) I'm I'm like, um, I can't wait. Is it? It's out on Wednesday, right? Next Wednesday. This next Wednesday. That's right. (laughs) Wednesday can't come soon enough. Um, (laughs) um, Okay. uh, this was actually all of these questions were the main questions I wanted to uh, to include in the in the article. Um, i had I had here three other questions. Um, okay, so this is one I, I want to uh, add. Um, okay, if candy and food are now replacing nature aspects like trees and mountains, what do people eat in this world?
1: This is a great question. I love this. People uh, eat uh, uh, the same things we eat in our. So, for example, because uh, uh, I do, I get why this would weird people out, but as an example, uh, you and I, as human beings in this real world, are currently, and I know this is gauche to say, we are made of meat. And it would be possible <laughs> to, we are made of meat. And so whenever you've eaten a steak or a hamburger or, you know, a piece of chicken in your life, that is a uh, um, that is eating something that is made of fundamentally the same material as you. So for someone made of candy, all that really happens is. When they grow a peppermint tree little peppermint fruit grow on it and they pick that peppermint fruit if they have like a little marshmallow meat like if they have a little like marshmallow peeps out in a field they'd take that to the butcher slaughter it cut it up that becomes a little candy steak for them right so it's almost the way you think about it is in the different nations um plant material and animal material is made of candy or dairy or meat or vegetable or whatever, but it's still fundamentally, um, uh, you know, they get their food from the same places. So like, um, uh, even though you live in a gingerbread house, it would be weird for you to like break off a piece of your own house and eat it, even though it's made of gingerbread. You would probably just go to a gingerbread farm and get some prepared foodstuffs there. Like in candia, I think the thing they drink most often is cola. That's like the beverage they have the most there. um, but when you go to Fructera, it's juice, right? So it's you know this whole that that sort of the vibe is there are still kind of like agreed upon foodstuffs that are just made out of the natural material of those food nations
2: okay, so you you basically if if i uh, if I would give an a comparison. You, you essentially took out protein and replaced it with uh, um, candy for candians and uh, vegetables for vegetanias and- Absolutely, right? And, when, and these, these nations also can eat
1: each other's food stuff. It's just about like what is available in your nation where you're growing it. But like when you go to Kamada where there's a lot of trade and everything, the feasts are like incredible because they have meat, they have dairy, they have all this stuff. So it's all groovy, uh, but yes, absolutely.
2: Okay, um, so uh, that's it. Uh, These are my questions for you, Brennan. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to say thank you so much. And uh, in the words of Ida Eggford, I love you and you're my best friend. Um,
1: (laughs) I love you too, man. It's great to (laughs) see you. I'm so happy to talk with you. These questions are awesome. I'm truly, truly so appreciative, homie. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Geek Peek. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brennan Lee Mulligan. Also, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or um, some other platform like Spotify or Google Podcasts, please leave a review and let me know what you think about the podcast to help it reach more people. This is very important and will help the podcast grow and um, find more people who are interested in seeing these little peaks into geek culture. Thank you again so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one.